0: Welcome to No Rain Date, a community podcast about local news and people. No Rain Date is a production of Salk & Source LLC. For more local news and information, please visit salkandsource.com. Hello No Rain Date listeners and welcome back to your favorite local news and information podcast. I'm Josh Popachak, the host of No Rain Day and the publisher of Sock and Source, here with the news headlines for the week ending October 8th, 2021. In local business news this week, there was a development out of Fountain Hill Borough where the owners of a very popular restaurant announced that they will be closing their doors for good later this month. Mady's famous steaks and pizza has been a landmark eatery in Fountain Hill since the late 1980s, which is why many people are heading there for one last meal before the restaurant closes on October 16th. Mady's is known for its cheesesteaks, and of course, their pizzas as well as other foods, fries, shakes, your traditional uh, comfort food that you find here in eastern Pennsylvania, and they do it very well. The reason given for the closing is that the family plans to spend more of their energy and time on expanding their frozen pizza business, which appears to be quite successful. The pizzas are often sold as fundraisers by schools and other organizations all throughout the Lehigh Valley and beyond. The pizza factory, I believe, is located adjacent to where the restaurant is, which is on Broadway in the 1300 block in sort of the heart of Fountain Hill. It's not exactly a business district, but it's a very noticeable building because of their large sign out front. As I said, the restaurant has been run by the Mady family since 1988. The Mady family is also related to the Mady's who formerly owned and operated Hellertown Crossroads, which was known as Mady's Crossroads Hotel for many, many years that business changed hands about seven or eight years ago, I believe it is now, and essentially the menu at that restaurant, which is now Hellertown Crossroads Hotel, remained the same. They did have some similarities, the two restaurants, over the years, of course, but one branch was operating Mady's Famous Steaks and Pizza in Fountain Hill, and... The other branch owned by the Ray Matey family was in Hellertown. So we wish the Mateys good luck with their frozen pizza business. Certainly, we hate to see another business in Fountain Hill close its doors. The borough does not exactly have a robust economic base in terms of retail, dining, and and other commercial enterprise. So it's a little bit tough to see a landmark restaurant like that go. But certainly, the last year and a half have been very difficult for many restaurants due to the COVID 19 pandemic. And I'm not sure in this case, but certainly in some cases, I think owners are just saying, you know, this is a good time to get out of the business. We've been stressed, you know, by all the adaptations that have been required by COVID. And, you know, if if you have any doubts about being in the restaurant business, you're probably considering getting out of it at this point, or if you're just tired of the many stresses that accompany running a restaurant. I could never do it. (laughs) So I tip my hat to anybody who does do it, and especially anybody that's able to do it for as many years as the mateys have in Fountain Hill. Over 30 years is a long time to keep any business open, but especially a restaurant. People's tastes change, people can be fickle. They never stop going to mateys in Fountain Hill. So great job matey family and stay tuned for their next chapter and like i said if you're a fan of their frozen pizza you don't have to worry that's going to be continuing and it sounds like production may even increase we profiled another business and a special event that they are hosting earlier this week I'm referring to Old Stone Farm and their Harvest Days event. You may recall, if you're a regular listener to No Rain Date, that we recently had farm owners Jim and Amy Cuck on No Rain Date as our guests, and it was a pleasure to interview them to learn more about the farm, which is a family farm, and to learn more about Harvest Days, which opened for the season on Saturday, October 2nd. I had the pleasure of visiting Harvest Days on Sunday, and it's really set up in a way that is inviting and family-friendly and fun. If you're familiar with the area, they are located at 1350 Robsville Road, which is near the base of Morgan Hill Road on the Hellertown side or Stouts Valley side of Morgan Hill. This is in Williams Township. It's easy to find, and they have markings, cones in the road, so you really can't miss it if you're heading that way. There's plenty of parking, and when you arrive, you'll see that everything is well signed. They really put a lot of effort into making a layout navigable for everybody. It's a flat piece of property, so it's easy to walk around. They have a nice, large tent set up, and that's where you go to pay your admission fee for a corn maze which is really the centerpiece attraction however they also have regular hay rides i did not go on a hay ride but they looked like a lot of fun a lot of people were lining up for them and this is all very reasonably priced of course they also have seasonal games for kids they have some goats there that you can admire they have a pumpkin patch of sorts where you can pick out pumpkins and also mums and corn stalks and hay bales to create like a fall uh, outdoor scene at your home or business. And everything is just very well laid out. I was able to get a pumpkin and a mum. I also picked up some soap, goat's milk soap, actually, from Oldwell Farm, which is a nearby farm located in Lower Saucon Township. We have written about Oldwell Farm in the past and they are known for their goat's milk soaps, but they also have some other products they're The Johnson family, which owns Oldwell Farm, they are good friends with the owners of Old Stone Farm. So they are there helping out along with the owners of Blue Barnyard, another local farm, and that would be the King family. They're volunteering. It's really great to see the community of, of local farms, which isn't huge supporting each other and just enjoying, you know, being outside in the fall. It's a great time of year to be out there. If you're thinking about, you know, getting out, looking at the leaves, admiring, you know, fall in the countryside, I can't really think of a better place to do it than Old Stone Farm. You can easily do it from anywhere in the Lehigh Valley and, you know, be there in probably half an hour or so. So, Check it out. They will be open Saturdays and Sundays throughout October, so the last day is Sunday, October 31st. They're open from 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. with their last admission at 4.30 p.m. to the corn maze. You can see lots of photos as well as find more information in the story on SockandSource.com course, in addition to fall events, it's homecoming season. This weekend, homecoming is being celebrated at Saucon Valley. The big football game versus rival Southern Lehigh is Friday evening, and that will be a competitive game from what I understand. The pep rally and community bonfire were held at the school district stadium on Thursday night and we have photos of those events on Sock and Source so check them out and of course the homecoming queen will be crowned during Friday night's football game we have profiles of all 12 homecoming court members on Sock and Source and you can learn more about uh, these remarkable students all of whom have achieved great things so far during high school and have exciting plans for the future You'll want to read those profiles and you'll feel good that you did. Lastly, we're getting into the middle of October, so that means parade season, and I mean Halloween parades, is about to start. Coopersburg's Halloween Parade will be held Sunday, October 17th at 3 p.m. in downtown Coopersburg. That's always a big parade, and it brings together the Southern Lehigh community for really one of the biggest events of the year. This is held in downtown Coopersburg, and you'll see many local organizations marching in the parade, floats from businesses, and of course groups like Girl Scouts, so on and so forth. Always a fun parade, lots of candy. The same can be said for the Saucon Valley Spirit Parade, which will be held the following Sunday, October 24th at 2 p.m. in downtown Hellertown. I believe lineup for this parade for the Hellertown Parade is going to begin at 1230. Of course, that's at the Talking Valley School District campus, where the parade begins and ends, the Hellertown parade follows a large loop. So it begins at the school district campus, heads down Walnut Street, and then hangs a little right onto Main Street, which is sort of the heart of the route from Walnut Street to Water Street. And at Water Street, it veers off Main, and then from Water, it turns onto Rensheimer Drive. Rensheimer Drive, it turns onto Durham Street. Durham Street, it turns onto Constitution Avenue, and that takes it straight back to the school district. This will be a big parade. There will be six divisions. Each division will have a sponsored marching band in it. And there is lots more information about this year's parade on the Saucon Valley Spirit Parade Facebook page. So I would encourage you to follow that. They are regularly posting updates. I saw one the other day regarding traffic. Of course, since the parade does shut down part of Route 412 for at least several hours that day, traffic is affected in the Hellertown area. So you may want to consider that if you live in town or you will be traveling through the area. The mayor, Mayor Heinzelman, who is the parade chairman, warned of potential uh, traffic disruptions from approximately 11 a.m. to 4 p.m. So that's the window of time when you may experience delays if you are driving into, out of, or around the Hellertown area. So that's just a heads up. Of course, the parade is a ton of fun for families and people of all ages. It's really great to see a community come out and support it. And they do need support in the form of donations to keep it going every year. So I know they will be uh, collecting them on parade day. Please be generous and support your local parade. This will also be a big one because it will be the first Halloween parade in Hellertown or Spirit parade in three years. Uh, you may recall that the 2019 parade was rained out, and that's because there is no rain date for the Sogham Valley Spirit Parade, and most Halloween parades, because of commitments that the different organizations marching in them typically have, they can't easily reschedule them. In 2020, of course, it was the pandemic that canceled almost all parades during Halloween season. So hopefully the third time will be the charm, and we'll have great weather for this year's parade, and I think it would take quite the storm to cancel it. Knock on wood, everything goes well. Of course, following uh, the parades will be trick-or-treat. Hellertown's trick-or-treat is Sunday, October 31st from 6 to 8 p.m., and that's also in Lower Saucon, in Southern Lehigh, and many other areas. Trick-or-treat will be held the Friday before Halloween, which is Friday, October 29th, from 6 to 8 p.m. And I would be remiss if I didn't mention finally the Bethlehem Halloween Parade, although we don't cover Bethlehem City as a whole. This year's parade will be special in the Christmas City because it is the 100th annual Bethlehem Halloween Parade, and they are actually calling it the Parade of the Century because not only is it the 100th annual halloween parade this is also the beginning of the 100th anniversary of liberty high school's opening which is going to be a year-long sort of community extravaganza it also happens to be the 100th anniversary of the hotel bethlehem opening so there are several centennials competing for your attention in bethlehem and they will all be celebrated in this massive parade understand students from all of the 16 elementary schools in Bethlehem Area School District will be marching in the parade. There will be just a tremendous outpouring of participants and certainly good tidings, excitement due to the fact that Bethlehem has not had a parade in two years. That will be on Sunday, October 31st. The parade is on Broad Street to Main Street and then it marches down Main Street through downtown Bethlehem and ends under the Hill to Hill Bridge. I have good memories of marching in that parade myself back in the 1990s when I was in the Liberty High School Grenadier Band and of course in our last interview we interviewed the new band director Alan Frank. So if you haven't yet listened to that I would encourage you to do so. Alan is continuing the great tradition of band music at liberty that goes back for nearly a century now we really enjoyed talking to him and learning more about how he's upholding that tradition and making the city of Bethlehem very proud of its grenadier band that's our roundup for this week we hope you enjoyed it and we hope you have a great week ahead we'll see you next week
1: Hey, Panther fans, it's homecoming, and this is Coach Reef coming at you with a scattering report for this year's Saucon Creek Classic between the Panthers and the Southern Lehigh Spartans. The 3-3 three and three Panthers are back home. It's homecoming. The Panthers are back home to battle the 0-6 Spartans. Kickoff on Friday night is scheduled for 7 p.m. Hey, don't let that Spartan record fool you. It is always an intense rivalry when these two schools compete. Southern Lehigh is winless so far. They lost to Quakertown 42-7, Notre Dame Green Pond 53-14, Northwestern Lehigh 34-19, Bangor 35-14, Wilson 42-14, and last week they lost to Pottsville 42-26. It looks like Southern Lehigh gives up a lot of points. Salkin Valley's losses, Notre Dame Green Pond 47-20. At Pottsville they lost 35-7, and at Wilson 24-22. Saucon Valley's wins, Salisbury 31-14 week two, Blue Mountain two weeks ago, 35-14, and last week, a great game for the Panthers, 36-22. What a second half that was over Bangor. The Panthers will be working for three consecutive wins and to keep their District 11 playoff hopes alive. By the way, did you take note of the common opponents between the Panthers and Spartans? Notre Dame Green Pond, Saucon Valley lost 47-20, Southern Lehigh lost 53-14. Pottsville. Saucon Valley was down 35-7, Southern Lehigh fell 42-26. Wilson, Saucon Valley was beaten 24-22, Southern Lehigh lost 42-14. Banger, Saucon Valley won 36-22, Southern Lehigh lost 35-14. On paper, it looks like Saucon Valley has a significant edge, but anything can happen in a Saucon Creek showdown. Let's talk about Southern Lehigh's offense against the Saucon Valley defense. Southern Lehigh averages only 16 points per game. The Saucon Valley defense gives up about 26. The Spartans operate from multiple sets, but they make most of their living in the I formation. They are definitely a run-first, play-action pass team. Quarterback number two, James Wise Carver, is the engine of the Spartan offense. Wise Carver is a sophomore who looks to be a solid six foot, 180 pounds. He has a nice-sized frame and a cannon of an arm. Number 21, Tyler Rizzuto, just may be Southern Lehigh's best running back. He's a speedy junior that stands 5'11", 165 pounds. He has a very quick burst, but is questionable as to whether he will play or not tomorrow night. Rizzuto has been on the injury shelf for the past couple of weeks. Number 35, Blaze Curry has picked up the slack in Rizzuto's absence. Curry is a senior that is listed at 6'205". He is a north and south runner that moonlights as a sledgehammer. Number 34, Nick Ventresca, is a 5'10", 200-pound junior. He will be the fullback who mostly lead blocks for Rizzuto or Curry. On the receiving end of Wise Carver's throws will be senior number 15, James Durham. He's 5'7", 140. Junior number 16, Avery Kozer, 6'175. Also, tight end number 8, Tyler Hauser, 6'2", 220. Hauser is a good football player. But like Rizzuto, has been MIA the past couple of weeks. It is not known if Hauser will be back to take on the Panthers. In Hauser's place has been number six, Will Knudsen. Wild Bill is a sophomore and is listed nicely at 6'1", 190. The Southern Lehigh offensive line. Center, number 54, junior, Kane Boyle, 5'10", 205. At guards, number 55, senior, Alex Schaefer, 5'11", 230. And number 75, Jiz Foyj. Freshman, six foot two oh five. Schaefer is Southern Lehigh's most experienced lineman and may also be on the injury shelf this week. It is unclear whether he will play or not. At tackle, Southern Lehigh has number fifty-two junior Michael Fluck. He's six foot one ninety-five, and number seventy-eight senior Ryan Gretz, six foot two thirty-five. Well, let's take a look at Southern Lehigh's defense against Sawkins offense. The Spartans run a base four-three defense. Saucon Valley is averaging 25 points per game so far. Seeing that Southern Lehigh gives up an average of 41 points per game, it seems as if the Panthers should score at least four or five touchdowns. If that is the case, hopefully the Saucon defense can keep the screws tightened on the Spartan offense and not let them manufacture too many scoring drives. The Panthers, of course, have a solid core of playmakers. Among those playmakers is number 12, dual threat, Dante Mahaffey. He's a senior. This season, he's 52 of 86 for 786 yards passing. He has a 61% completion percentage. Dante averages about 131 yards per game and has seven passing touchdowns, all set by three interceptions. This season, rushing the ball, Dante has carried 77 times for 583 yards. That averages out to almost eight yards per carry. Mahaffey has crossed into the end zone nine times so far this season. He has proven this year to be a very tough tackle. Number 21, senior Damian Garcia, is the Panthers' most productive running back. He is 62 carries for 314 yards this season, which is good for 5 yards per carry. He has 5 touchdowns so far this season. Number 11, Ty Sensitz, another senior. He has been the Panthers' most productive receiver. Ty is in the 1,000-yard club for his career. This season, he has 27 catches for 464 yards and 3 touchdowns. Let's hope Sensen and Mahaffey can hook up again a few times and have another big night. Number three junior Alex Magnata is also on Mahaffey's radar. Being 6'3 with great hands certainly helps that. Magnata has 14 catches for 220 yards and three touchdowns. Don't go to sleep on senior number nine Anthony Orleman. He had a great week of practice and is a very good receiver. Orleman is a slippery guy with good hands. He is fun to watch in action with the ball in his hands. It's going to be a great night for some high school football on Friday. With a 3-3 and record, the Panthers are pursuing a third consecutive win. But the Spartans are coming in at 0-6, and they are no doubt desperate for the first dub of the season. And to upend the Panthers in Hellertown on their homecoming night would surely be a sweet signature win for Southern Lehigh. The Spartans will be ready to play. They will be hungry. Barring an extraordinary amount of turnovers and penalties, the biggest key as I see it will be the Salkin Valley defense being able to get off the field. Southern Lehigh will try and play bully ball and be content to go three yards in a cloud of dust. The Spartans will be patient, try to cram the ball down the Panthers' throat. The Spartans will try and methodically move the sticks all the way to the end zone. If the Panthers can create more Spartan punting situations than not, it would greatly increase their chances to secure win number four. However, Southern Lehigh's punter is lightly used on Friday night, then the Panthers could find themselves in some trouble. Friday is looking like it'll be a beautiful night. It'll be dry with temperatures currently forecast for the upper 60s throughout the game. Being dry and with a light breeze, it should be a very pleasant night. So, round up the whole family and bring them out to enjoy all the homecoming festivities. It is going to be a great night for some high school football. Happy homecoming, Panthers. The source is with you.
0: Here at and Source, our mission is to provide information and make it as available as possible to the people in our community. A large part of that is a public service and we're grateful for the support we have from local advertisers because that revenue helps keep the information flowing to you, our readers and listeners. Local news production does cost money and that's why we've also introduced a voluntary membership option on sock and source and we'd like to tell you a little more about that essentially the membership is a recurring monthly contribution that shows your support for the work that we're doing. It helps guarantee that the information will remain free and accessible to you as well as to others in our community. And it also helps fund our future growth. Sock & Source is growing and we're expanding our coverage area. The more support we receive from the community, the better coverage we can provide and the more useful the site will be to you. So that's why we would invite you to visit our membership page on the website website, sockandsource.com. You can do that by clicking on Join under My Sock and Source, which you'll see on the right side of your screen if you're on a desktop or at the bottom of any article page. You'll see several membership options, including a monthly membership for $7, a four-month membership for $25, or a yearly membership for $70. These are strictly voluntary contribution levels and they're not any part of a paywall. There's no requirement to contribute, but we are grateful for those who have already done so and we hope that you will consider purchasing a membership in the future. Doing so is quick and easy. You can do it securely online and you can cancel at any time. Thank you again to all our current members and thank you for considering becoming a future member. This week on No Rain Date, we're starting to turn our thoughts towards Halloween. It's October now and we are thrilled to have as our guest somebody who is an expert on a topic that is closely associated with Halloween in this area. And I'm talking to Dr. Ned Heindel, who is the Emeritus Howard S. Bunn Distinguished Professor of Chemistry at Lehigh and also an expert an author in the area of the early Pennsylvania German practice of witchcraft. He has written several editions of a book called Hexenkopf History, Healing, and Hexerei which is about Hexenkopf rock in Williams Township and the many historical practices and legends that surround That incredible geologic feature, which also has been on on part of his property, or was for many, many years. Thank you so much for joining us.
2: Thank you for having me, Josh.
0: Absolutely. I've been a, a fan of yours ever since I first heard you speak to the Lower Saucon Township Historical Society a number of years ago, when you gave a presentation about Pennsylvania German folk medicine practices in the 18th century. This was known as, well, before we get into the powwowing, which was the folk medicine, I want to talk a little bit about your history. How did you go from, well, you you kind of did both things at once, but how does a chemistry professor become interested in in a topic like witchcraft?
2: Uh, Yes, I am a chemistry professor, but the type of chemist I am is a pharmaceutical chemist, and I'm particularly interested in drugs from natural sources. I have over 230 publications on development of pharmaceuticals, both synthetically, as from synthetic materials and, and natural. Back when I was a student, I took a, a elective course at the pharmacy school in Philadelphia on uh, pharmacognosy. That's a $64 word, uh, pharma from the Greek drug, and cognacy, meaning from the word cognate to know. So the translation into simple English is to know drugs. But mm. pharmacognosy deals with drugs mostly from folk cultures, from herbal constructs and from botanical extractions that have made it through to the market. It's a, it's a fascinating subject. It's no longer required of pharmacy students, but it's still an elective. And I was a graduate student at the University of Delaware Philadelphia was not far away. I was interested in the topic, so I took a course on it. My own grandmother, who uh, was alive into my 20s, was a Pennsylvania German folk healer, what we call a a browser or a powwow doctor. She made many different kinds of herbal tinctures from plants she grew in her garden. And she had a a whole litany of sing-songy type chants that she would speak to your illness or ask you to speak to your own illness and uh, drive that illness away. And those two features, the um, botanical side, I got interested in because I was a chemist and I had an education in botanical medicine. And the folkloric side of the Pennsylvania Dutch, which uh, I got through being a sixth generation Pennsylvania German, living out in York County. We spoke German in the home up until uh, Hitler invaded Poland. I I was born before World War II and I lived through that war. Grandma, fluent in Pennsylvania German, my parents okay with it, but uh, didn't speak it all the time. And they were trying to teach me. And then one fine day in 1941, it <laughs> all came to a scratchy end. And Everybody started speaking English at the farmer's market and down the street.
0: Was that just to be patriotic? Yes, or? Okay. exactly. It was an
2: expression of patriotism, a feeling of disloyalty if you were mm-hmm. still speaking German. So I didn't become fluent in it. I can do some reading, and I certainly understand the charms and the chants and the incantations. So my interest in the folklore and the witchcraft comes from both an academic preparation on the drug side and a folkloric preparation on the uh, occult and the the mystic side. Because just as you can cure diseases by sucking out those demons, you can cause diseases or misery to other people by sending them a, a disease. It's the difference between brauchery and hexery. Brauchery, from the German word brauchen, to use is a positive side. It's the use of this folk therapy to cure people. The black arts side is hexeri. Most powwow doctors or browsers, as they sometimes call themselves, do know some spell casting and uh, some hexeri. They are very reluctant to use it. So uh, you see far more good from the uh, folkloric medicine than you do evil, but we do, uh, have spell casting techniques. And just like in Harry Potter, there's a, a short course in defense against the dark arts. We can teach and show you how to keep those hexes at at, at and so uh, the evil witches don't bother you.
1: Hmm.
0: So how, I'm curious, like how common was this knowledge that your grandmother had within the community? Was that something that, like, every woman of her generation would know something about?
2: That's, that's a very good question, because he, he, the, the answer is that everybody in a Pennsylvania German community knew a little bit. Everybody knew that bergamot tea would cause your pale-faced skin to turn more reddish in the spring of the year. Everybody knew at least one incantation. Haley, haley, Hinkeldreck bis morgen frei It's weg ha ha chicken manure by tomorrow morning you'll feel better anyhow so uh, uh, basically don't worry about it and haley haley hinkledrek morgen frage talischbeck. I bet there's not a Pennsylvania Dutchman today even the seventh or eighth generation who doesn't know that mm-hmm. or who doesn't know a few of the herbal teas and tinctures but a deep understanding comes with access to a printed source it's just like a a physician's needs the physician's desk reference to occasionally look up what dosage of a drug he's going to prescribe to somebody. There are more than 30 so-called grimoires. It's a word you don't see very often. G-R-I-M-O-I-R-E-S. A grimoire is a published book. Sometimes it's a manuscript loaded with these in-depth cures and treatments that would require more knowledge to... Memorize it in your brain, then you've got space for it. Hmm. It's basically a reference book. Mm-hmm. One was written by a, a chap who lived here in Hellertown in 1805. But as I say, there's well more than 30 that I know of. Hmm. And and a real folkloric practitioner will own at least one of these, and maybe several. And uh, so they have access to a, a much wider array of therapies than my grandmother and her little tea garden out back.
0: Right. So when you're talking about the period with, with your grandmother, that, that's sort of the last days or, yes. of this era. And do you think that World War II sort of accelerated the decline of practicing this just because it was you know, ger- related to Germanic culture?
2: It, it really did. And, and the, if you take a history of medicine course, The thing they claim put the kibosh to all of these folkloric medicines was the development of the sulfa drugs in 1932. Hmm. Because grandmother, the other Broushers and powwow doctors all believed in nature. uh, Nature has the power to cure us. We just have to learn how to use the Bible and, and botany together and anything that doesn't come from nature isn't gonna work. And then along came Gerhard Domach, who stumbled on the sulfanilamide, the first of the sulfa drugs, about 1932. It's made from coal tar. (laughs) It's made with ammonia, hydrochloric acid. I mean, Mm -hmm. stuff Mother Nature hasn't seen in her wildest dreams. And yet, it's a darn good drug. And it treated conditions that the folklorists had no way of handling, postpartum infections in women who would just given birth under non-sterile conditions. ended up getting a uterine infection. Twasn't much you could do with those with uh, all the mystic mumbo jumbo and folk medicine, but penicillin later and sulfas first, give it a whack. Mm -hmm. So you were immediately put to question this issue. Is the only good medicine what comes from a plant? Is the only good deliverer of that medicine? Somebody who believes in a folkloric approach? The answer is no. Licensed, academically trained physicians and synthetic drugs are now, about 75% of our drugs never came anywhere near a growing plant.
0: Mm -hmm.
2: Weren't even inspired by a growing plant. So that as well as the Germanic, it didn't help that this folk culture was German in origin Mm -hmm. and hence World War II had a negative effect. But slightly eight years before World War II, the sulfas had an impact on those who believed in natural medicine only.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, that makes sense. So, well, you, as you said, grew up exposed to some of this in an indirect way or in your early formative years. You went to school, studied chemistry, and then in the 19... 19- 60s was when you went to live on Hexenkopf Road in Williams Township. Yes. Hexenkopf meaning, which is head, and it's not only the name of the road; it's the name of the rock formation at this pinnacle, one of the highest points in the area, I believe. Yes, it is. Did you know anything about the rock at that point?
2: No. Uh, the we were just looking for a quiet, ideal piece of property. My wife was teaching hordes of freshmen in English at Moravian College and I'm teaching hordes of young chemists at Lehigh and we're being battered hour after hour as they come by for, hey, I got this point right and you took it wrong. Uh, You get saturated with human contact when you're teaching freshmen. So the, the opportunity to buy a farm in the country where you couldn't see either property on either side of you, standing on your front porch, was bloody attractive. (laughs) And it it didn't matter that the road had a strange name, Hexenkopf, I knew what that meant. Mm -hmm. And uh, the real estate agent knew enough to say, that name comes from a rock up there on the hill, shaped like the head of a witch. So uh, that was about the the limit of what we knew when we signed the deed. (laughs) The rest I learned by talking to the neighbors, looking up deeds and historical records. There's an enormous literature out there on this. It's, it's Hexenkov has been studied and written about since uh, uh, about 1800.
0: And the area was settled in 17...
2: 1737 to 1741, the first settlers come in.
0: Okay, which is around the time a lot of this area was yeah. saw its first white settlers.
2: There's a period of about 12 years of rather intense overlap with the Lenape as the Lenape were being driven out by uh, the Iroquois. But there were still Lenape settlements and Lenape ceremonies going on, Lenape gatherings at the, the shad fishing time through to 1851-152. And then white pressure gradually, uh, white and Iroquois pressure, forced the Lenape's westward. So our first settlers, Laubachs, Illex, Hellers, the first arriving settlers saw Indian encampments, knew, knew some Indians. Usually they spoke English by that time and there was overlap.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: And there's, there's clearly some information exchange. Uh, Indian curative techniques, especially the herbal type, do cross to the Pennsylvania Dutch settlers. And one particular one that is a success story is crushed mayapple root. The the Lenape had a technique for accessible tumors. Now, they didn't have CAT scanning and ultrasound to see where the tumors are, but if you had a bump on your thigh, your buttocks, your arm, and it it was getting bigger and bigger and redder and redder, and it wasn't breaking out into a pus-filled boil, it was a malignant growth, you might try macerating mayapple root in the spring of the year and making a paste out of it, cutting that bump open with the sharp point of a knife and making it bleed, and rubbing in mayapple root. That is actually surprisingly effective because there's a, a toxin in mayapple that does quite a job on malignant cell growth. It's called toxin, and we find in the notebooks of the Moravian missionaries who were out there trying to Christianize the Delaware and the Lenape, uh, several mentions of seeing this Mayapple technique. That remains in uh, folkloric history through to about 1950 when several drug companies launched an effort to see if there really was something there that would work. And they found this compound, pedophilotoxin. It's a little too toxic to give orally, Hmm. But if you attach a molecule of sugar to it, <laughs> literally chemically hmm. link a molecule of sugar to it, it goes down well. It's absorbed, and it's now one of the best-selling anticancer drugs. It's called etoposide. Hmm. Etoposide, but its wow. a, origin was mayapple pulp, and now the tumor doesn't have to be cut open. You can take it orally, and through the bloodstream, it circulates to the spot. So we have we have a number of instances like that where there seems to have been an interchange of Indian curative techniques into Pennsylvania Dutch curative techniques.
0: Right. So yeah, because I was going to ask you about that overlapping period where they were both active in, in the area and if there was you know, conflict or especially, you know, cause the Indians had a special relationship with Hex and mm-hmm. It was sacred to them? Yes,
2: it was a shrine. Several contemporary authorities tell us about its sacredness to them. In the 1850s, a group of anthropologists from Durham who were associated in business with the Durham iron furnaces, but were educated people made a conscientious exploration of Hexenkopf, and, and they found rock piles where there shouldn't have been rock piles, <laughs> meaning that they weren't on anybody's property line, but there were pieces of chipped quartz stuck amidst the rocks. That's an old Indian technique of marking something sacred, where you, if, if you're out in the woods and the great spirit moves you and you feel a spiritual connection with the Almighty, you might have in your pocket several chips of quartz and you'll place those there to tell other of your kith and kin that God moved me in this. And there is a very useful map drawn in 1877 from the memory of a Durham public school teacher named George Laubach who in the 1850s had done his first exploration and found these pieces of quartz. He gave us a map showing where on the Hexenkopf these uh, sacred rock piles uh, existed. He also found several very long Indian grave mounds, 20 to 25 feet in length, about two feet above the surface of the, of the ground. Alas, through uh, local farmers having been told that those graves were there, they were plowed open with a single-blade plow and anything historic or commercial value was uh, removed by the farmers. Mm-hmm. But we do know where they were on the southeast slope of, uh, of Hexenkov, near uh, a spring. Hmm. We have a lot of useful information from a source you wouldn't think of, and that's the Columbia Gas Pipeline and the Pennies Pipeline. Both the, the Columbia Gas Pipeline goes around the base of Hexenoff Hill. It doesn't go over the top. The Pennies pipeline was intended to go over the top of the ridge and straight down to the valley floor. Uh, but both companies employed individuals of professional background to make sure that the right-of way that they were planning didn't take you through a bog turtle habitat, a endangered species, or some very rich cultural, Artifact, an Indian campground, a burial ground. The last thing they want is bad press for things like that. Uh-huh. And, and believe it or not, both pipelines discovered campsites and uh, lithic manufacturing sites, sp- spots where Indians camped for long periods of time while chipping out arrowheads and, and bird points. Uh, one is to the northwest of Hexencoff. one is at the very base of the south side of Hexencoff and one is down by where Fry's Run, Williams Township's equivalent of the Nile River, crosses the Durham Bridge. And the pipeline companies did the, did avoid those sites. They also, their employees wrote up an official record of where they found this stuff. Hmm. So uh, all of this confirms the uh, Lenape link to, to Hexagolf.
0: Just backing up a second to the what you said about the quartz. Now, would that was that also so they could see it more easily? Would the quartz shine, like in yes. the moonlight? yeah or? and
2: chipped quartz would not have... Slabs of quartz, rocks of quartz are, are are common, but to break it up into smaller chunks, about half the size of a cigarette pack, and mm-hmm. stick it places, that's unnatural. Mother Nature's not doing that. Somebody... So so it becomes a marking technique. There's actually quite a literature out there on the linkage between quartz or other white rocks and these native stone piles. There's a regular blog site on Indian stone piles. The Indian stone piles almost invariably have a piece of quartz, usually on the side of the rock pile that's pointing toward a spring. And the other end of the rock pile, if it's of Indian origin, is almost always built into an overhanging boulder. The other feature you find is a manitou. The Indian would have taken the flattest piece of rock and uh, chipped a head on an upper body torso. No arms, no but a rendition of uh, of God, the, the manitou, the great spirit, mm-hmm. uh, and would have placed that at a high point on the rock pile. We are discovering over time that a significant number of these rock piles in eastern Pennsylvania, the first test they have to pass is they can't be on any property line now or ever. So they also are never used to fully clear a field. The Indian wasn't interested in planting corn. He was interested in marking something. So these rock piles never clearly remove all the adjacent rocks. There's enough to make a Uh, a rock pile, and then couple that with the use of quartz couple that with the the manitou oh, the other thing is they're not long runs, these weren't walls to separate anything, you see one that's 30 feet long, uh, that's uh, pretty long, (laughs) and they almost always point toward something important, a spring and they almost always start nestled within a large boulder so we have a couple of those in Hexacoff and they were discovered back in the 1850s by the group of amateur archeologists from the Durham schools. And they left us a map.
0: Is there any way to date these, these piles?
2: Today? Ah, yes. <laughs> the hottest and newest technique is a fluorescence technique, which relies on the fact that you can cause the minerals to fluoresce with x-rays and that the amount of fluorescence you can achieve is related to whether the rock has seen sunlight or not. Hmm. So last year we had a group from the the County Parks Board come out and do a uh, dig on these Hexenkov rock extrusions. You throw throw a, a black tent over the rock pile, tack it down as tightly as you can. Somebody gets in there with a red headlamp and digs down into the rocks to as low as you can get, takes one out from the bottom, wraps it up in a black bag, takes the tent off, takes one off the top. So you have one exposed to sun, you have one that's never seen sun. And the differential x-ray fluorescence gives you the age of the rock. Hmm. Uh, So we are anxiously awaiting the results of, uh, that, that has turned out to work very nicely for several Indian artifactual remains in Berks County. It's been the the sampling phase for those in Northampton County was just finished about two months ago. So the analysis is underway now. Well, we'll definitely wanna
0: hear what the conclusions are about that. That, that sounds interesting, interesting research.
2: My wife was extraordinarily moved about four years ago when a van full of Lenape from the reservation out in Ponca City, Oklahoma, which is the where the Delaware were pushed to, ultimately, came east to meet the uh, Lenape of uh, the Lenape Nation, whose local headquarters are in the Bachman Tavern building in Easton. These were their distant cousins. They had heard about Hexenkoff and they wanted to come out and uh, see the rock. And I think there was only one man in the group, the rest were women, but they came out and walked the... Uh, the rock. In fact, they came back uh, again, and my wife talked to them. I was off working, On the second visit, they gave her an embroidered red robe, and proclaimed her the keeper of the hexacoff. Wow! Because they they were aware that at the time we were fighting the pipeline. Yeah, the Lenape were considerable help. They come out and drummed on the hill. They sent a representative to two of the information gathering sessions when. The Federal Energy Commission was first doing its research on whether the pipeline should be approved. The Lenape showed up with a drumming group uh, up at a, a public information session in Lehighton, and and drummed in the parking lot out, outside uh, Sacred Music. They've been out on the hill and drummed for us. So, uh, in their way, they uh, did their best. I've never forgotten one of the one of the lines that the Lenape sub chief used. In speaking to the representatives of the power company and the gas company, is, I come here to speak for those who have no lips, and uh, she went on to talk about the wildlife, those who couldn't stand up for themselves. And I thought that was a very effective way of pitching,
0: mm-hmm. uh, the connection. And and it's it seems, I get I mean here in in the Northeast, sadly I mean it, we it feels like we're very removed from Native American culture. It's not like I would imagine it is out west where, you know, there's closer proximity between Native Americans and the majority. But here it's it's sort of a a very just minimal presence. And so the fact that that the rock is preserved for them to be able to connect with it in that Mm -hmm. way is remarkable in itself. And then that they came all that way and, you know, made the effort, that's that's Mm -hmm. really special.
2: Well, we we were moved by it, yes.
0: So the rock, is it associated with, it's associated both with the white and the black magic? Yes.
2: And Heller in his history book on Northampton County, which was written in the 1920s, had interviewed some quite elderly, descendants of the Lenape who stayed on. Usually these were Lenape women who had married Pennsylvania German men. And they told him that the Lenape were aware of this unusual shaped protrudence on the western side of the highest one of the pinnacle rocks that that we now call the Witch's Head or the Hexenkopf. They called it a Bear's Head. They saw a bear in it. And that was enough that they took it as a sacred sign from God and never physically camped on the hill. There's no Indian remains anywhere near the rock itself. No lithics, no campfire beds, no posts for uh, uh, teepees or temporary structures. But there are as little as three quarters of a mile northwest hmm. and and nearly a half a mile southeast. So the, Those sites have pottery shards and lithic remains. So you know they were there, but it's equally clear they weren't physically on top of the hill. When the settlers come, first maps you see drawn by white settlers are in the early 1700s. And the the mountain appears, it's just called a Rocky Mountain, Hmm. by about 1745 and 1750. You're starting to see, calling it uh, the Hexenkopf. And that becomes very, very prominent with these healers, these two dynasties of healers from Robsville-Hellertown area who used the rock to transfer sickness and evil into. That begins intensely in the 1840s, and it lasts till uh, the 1940s to the, the Wilhelm family and the Saylor family, both using this technique of transference medicine where you transfer... Sickness out of somebody to some other place—that's a very common part of brouchery or powwowing, is to move the evil. And as long as you don't send it to another living person, it's not hexery. But if I draw the tuberculosis out of you and I send it to him, that's uh, an unethical procedure. Right. That would get me disbarred from the <laughs> if there were a medical group for. Right. doctor. that's Hexerai as opposed to Brousherai.
0: And there was, there was no group, right? It was just no, individuals no. doing this and maybe they knew of each other and, and shared notes or or it was just passed down th- through each family.
2: The closest we come to a the, the, that question's been asked often. Were these people organized? Were these healers part of a, a clan or a clique? And the answer seems to be, Heavens know. But there is an eighteen eighteen book published from here, from Northampton County, called De Landon House Apateka, the Field and House Pharmacy Guide. And it's written by a Pennsylvania Dutchman who lived outside of Hellertown. Initially he lived on Flint Hill Road, then he moved into the Lower Saucon Township somewhere. He appears on the eighteen ten census. Johann Georg Holman. Holman writes a book about almost nothing occult. The sing-songy charms aren't in it. Instead, it's loaded with botanical cures, and it's sold by prepaid subscription to believers, Hmm. and their names are printed in the back. Hmm. It is loaded with Lower Salkin and Williams Township subscribers, and as you look down, it, you can find the Wilhelms and the sailors buying the book. So no, there wasn't a society that met the second Thursday of the month at Braveheart. Uh, <laughs> for, <coughs> but they did seem to be a recognized group of users of these folk techniques, enough so that Holman was able to pay for a nice thick, well-researched book on botanical medicine in the 1880s, the, the London House Appletaker, the Field and House Pharmacy Guide.
0: I'm imagining Hellertown 200 years ago, and and like houses having like little herb gardens, yes. where they were growing these botanicals. And wow, that just seems like it does almost seem like something out of Harry Potter or something. Compared to compared to medicine today, what were some other examples of spells that the powwow doctors would have used? Yeah,
2: you know the spell bit is is a far larger percentage than I would have. If I had to rewrite history, I would have made Broushery or powwowing 80% botanicals and 20% mysticism. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but unfortunately, if you look at these grimoires and these books about healing of the time, it's nearly 80% occult mystical sayings and 20% botany. There are some Great ones. Most of them are in German. I've mentioned one already. Haley, Haley, Hinkeldrack, Bischburg, and Freigitalischbeck. That's the general one for whatever ails you. But let me give you a couple here. Der Rotlauf und der Rock. Flicken mein Name über die Bach. Der Drach verschwinkt. Der Rotlauf vergiebt. That's a red fire and a dragon flew over the stream. The dragon flew off and the red fire ceased. Red fire was the name for inflamed skin, a topical, usually a staph infection uh, mm. from a brush burn that had gotten infected. So you recite that three times, and your infected skin clears up. There's another one for an angina. Hirtspar und Wachse, Kom von der Ribbe, de Jesus Christus, Kom von der Heart pain and liver pain come out of your rib. Like Jesus Christ came out of his crib, uh, the, <laughs> it, it, get the idea of expulsion of uh, sucking out, and those are very
0: typical. And this would have been said very forcefully, probably very, very.
2: forcefully, and with the you, cease, uh, you say it three times. Each time you say it, when you say the last word, you say Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. There's for tuberculosis. There's ones for headache. There's ones for cancer. Let me give you a couple in English because they're very, very rare in English. Job lay upon the dung as dear Lord Jesus came along. Job, why dost thou mourn? My gums hurt most since I was born. Well, take three straws out of that dung. Draw each of those straws across your tongue and your lips and gums will again be strong. That's a a rare one because it's in England. And you notice it doesn't have the expulsion stuff. It's it's action to be done by the, uh, by the sufferer. Mm-hmm. These are called Broush charms, and there are hundreds of them. In my latest edition of the book, I was helped enormously by Patrick Dunmoyer of the Pennsylvania German Center out in Kutztown, who was able to translate a powwow book from Hellertown here given to the County Museum almost 20 years ago by uh, uh, Scott Rogers, a uh, Hellertown local. It had passed down in his family, the Wilhelm family, through five generations. And it goes all the way back to 1714 in Germany where the first inscriptions are written. And it was being used up until about the 1920s by the uh, Wilhelm family. And it passed down through the Rogers family. And When I did my first edition of the book, Mrs. Wilhelm, the last of the Wilhelms, was still alive. She called me up and she said, I think I've got something that relates to the same kind of curative book you're talking about in your book. And I got my boots on and ran right out to see her. She lived at that time near where the Lehigh athletic fields are now. Hmm. And she showed me the book. She wasn't willing to give it to me at the time, but she did let me copy it. And at her death, her... Her grandson gave it to the museum. It is a treasure because Dunmoyer says it's the oldest book he's ever seen that links the German Rhineland culture to the Pennsylvania German culture because the the book has dates in it. The, The first author had it from 1714 to 1743. The second author had it from 1743 to about 1780, and he brings it to the New World, and then it passes down from Wilhelm, to Wilhelm, to Wilhelm, to Wilhelm, Wilhelm, right down to the present day. There's very little botany. There's a little bit of use of of pulverized thistle for curing diseases of pigs and cows, a curious preparation for pulverized thistle root. But almost everything is the healer speaking to the disease as if the disease was a demon. And some of these stanzas go through 10, 12 lines of text, ordering the demon to leave the body. Mm -hmm. And they're written in German that even the best current German scholar can't read because the the script type is too old. It's what we call Frakturschrift. But Dunmoyer has read that and has given me an appendix in the book in which he has translated about eight of the cures as they appeared in the original German to the best English translation you can make of it hmm. it's really interesting how they, how biblical it was, how they were convinced they were working the, the labor of Jesus Christ in casting out demons and curing by expulsion of the of the evil. but you had to speak to the disease with authority and with the, a clean living, righteous child of God delivering the message and you could drive out the
0: demon now one thing i'm curious about is would these subjects would this have been addressed in church at that time even though it was related to the religion or just sort of not talked about at a formal level
2: it made a transition in in the 1790 period you do see some ministers using laying on of hands healing and browsing There's a 1925 book by, again, a Hellertown preacher, Preston Lowry, who wrote it up as a manuscript, a series of his sermons. He uh, preached in a Lutheran charge that had several congregations, one of which was Old Williams on William's Township. Mm -hmm. But he was really angry about the existence of powwowing and browsing in his time. He said that modern medicine is progressing rapidly. Uh, we understand the illnesses of the body in a way that our ancestors couldn't. And and frankly, I think it's sinful for anybody to say they are doing the work of God and curing you by herbal preparations or laying on of hands. Get yourself to a licensed orthodox physician and get hmm. treated. Forget this mystic mumbo-jumbo stuff. So by the mid-1920s, we've seen the, at least as represented by Preston Lowry, one pastor, and I think many others too. We've seen a reversal of this business of the powwowing being the, the cure and the modern medicine being the
0: cure. And by then you had you had radio, you, you had the ability to travel yes. to cities. In the 1700s, most people would probably live their entire lives in one relatively small area.
2: Yeah. There are, uh, the, the, the troops, believer in powwowing, uh, and there's very few of them left, would cite a couple biblical passages to say that I'm doing the work of God. They cite the Gospel of Mark chapter 5. Jesus is confronted by a, a wild man who has been rolling in the dirt in a cemetery and having what seemed to be epileptic seizures. And the guy runs at Jesus and says, cure me, cure me. And, and Jesus speaks to the demons and orders the demons to leave the man. And the demons do leave the man, but one of the demons stops and talks to Jesus. Jesus says, what is your name? And he said, I am Legion, for there are many of us in him. And Jesus expels those demons into a nearby herd of pigs. And the pigs get up from sleeping, run for a nearby pond, drop in it and die and drowned. Yeah, So that's that's the Gospel of Mark, chapter 5. In the Gospel of Luke, chapter 8, we have the same story, so it must have been common in the time, the demon exiting at Jesus' command, saying, my name is Legion, etc. The same pig story. In Luke, chapter 10, verse 19, there's an interesting one. Jesus speaking to his disciples and any of the who follow thereafter. Behold, I give you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions. I give you power over the enemy and nothing shall hurt you." The the true believers in this use of the biblical healing connection cite Jesus' own uh, expulsions of demons as saying they're doing the same thing. And if
0: you have Jesus on your side, that doesn't (laughs) doesn't (laughs) hurt That's right. Now, you have lived, on the rock, next to the rock, for over fifty years. What experiences have you had that stand out in your mind? That maybe of a supernatural nature or just strange occurrences? Have you have you witnessed?
2: There are some. Uh, the rock lies south of uh, Gaffney Hill, and there's a little valley formed between Gaffney Hill and Hexenkopf Hill, prevailing winds seem to be from north to south most commonly. It's surprising how many times you see a pillar of cloud. There are two reports in my book, very specific dates of kids sitting on the rock or adults watching where a mystical, the tubular shaped cloud of black, black smoke, black cloud drifts from north to south over hexenkopf and hovers over hexenkopf mm-hmm. uh, I have seen clouds move in that direction. I've never seen any move and uh, and stop. It is puzzling to most of us in this modern era, why as you approach hexenkopf your GPS cuts out. Mm-hmm. Uh, and for uh, about a half a mile on either side, especially as you're coming in Valley View Road toward hexenkopf your cell phone Goes to zero bars, and uh, your GPS craps out. As you pass the front of Hexenkopf, if you're listening to your car radio, your your radio uh, craps out. There, there is a uh, something uh, mysterious there. We've seen unusual lightning. We lost a horse in the field just north of Hexenkopf to a, a lightning storm. He was struck by a bolt of lightning. Huh. Uh, lightning has destroyed several homes on the hill. Most recently, about 20 years ago, it destroyed the Cuck family barn at the base of the hill by uh, being hit by lightning. Wow. There are a number of stories about how the witches block guns from being successful in killing any animals on the hill. At least two such stories were well-documented and written up in newspapers and books of the time, how attempting to hunt on Hexenkopf resulted in your weapon never able to hit another piece of game after you'd left the hill. You, you had to have your rifle de- de-witched. We've enjoyed seeing the various religious groups make use of the hill. I've gotten to know, I've met three or four of the warlocks. There are times of the year when uh, Pennsylvania German believers in the occult gather. Uh, one is the night before the devil's devil's birthday. That's April 30th. It's uh, called Nacht, The Witch's Sabbath Night. And the other is Halloween. And over the years, cults from uh, Wicca, the folkloric witch-related cults out of Long Island, out of Bristol, out of Scranton, have come down to uh, worship on the rock. We had a fairly large group in uh, 2016 come in have a uh, ceremony on the rock. Before that, a few years before, we had a Buddhist colony at the bottom of the hill, where Hexenkopf Road meets Morgan Hill Road, hmm. and the uh, the Buddhists used to crawl up on the rock and sit there and chant. Uh, they claimed they felt more spiritual there than they did uh, huh. anywhere else. Wow! And, and of That's course we have, <laughs> of course we have the old Indian uh, connections with it. So the people do feel a, a spirituality uh, there on the hill.
0: Yeah, well, I think it's wonderful that, that you have kept it accessible for groups like that over the years and welcome them. And I'm just wondering if that will continue with the the fact that land is now going to be under the care of Northampton County or uh, what could, because they are in the process of sort of preserving and making it more accessible?
2: Yeah, they are. We, uh, My wife and I started with one small farm track. And just by the fact that we've been there so many years and everybody else has died off, we've been able to buy pieces. So uh, ultimately we owned uh, 11 separate uh, pieces, about 140 acres of which 77 is on the south side of Hexenkopf And we've given that to the county as a Hexenkopf nature Preserve. The official acceptance was in December of uh, 2020. The county is taking it seriously. They, they, they have cleared one field intended to be a future parking lot. It would handle about eight or nine cars. This is not going to be a, a, a campground. There won't be tables or barbecue pits, but they are going to open up the trails uh, again, so they tell us. The Hexenkopf is surrounded by old logging trails. The main economic use of that hill for two and a half, three centuries that it's been used by white men has been to take the wood off of it. And uh, mm-hmm. initially for the paper mill down at Robsville, which used practically any piece of cellulose it could get, it's been clear cut a number of times. And there are pictures of logging crews up there with portable saws taking down the large trees. So to get into and over the hill, previous loggers put in a network of roads and they make great hiking trails now. uh, It's sort of shaped like an H. There's two trails that run up and down the hill and then there's two trails that run laterally to the hill. All of those wind storms and tree uprootings that we've seen the last four or five years have closed most of the trails and I'm getting too old to open them with my saw, but the county has started and uh, I think it is their intent to make these into uh, hiking trails.
0: Hopefully so. by Halloween 2022. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> because we we wanted to, just to explain to our listeners, Saucon Source and the Lower Saucon Township Historical Society, we met with Dr. Hindel over the summer and talked about actually having a, a talk on Hexenkopf, about Hexenkopf, and... Kopf and of the things we talked about tonight for our members and the county just is not in a position to clear the trails of these fallen trees within the next month or so it's it's quite a job and you you were kind enough to to let us look around a little bit and and i didn't get to the rock yet but certainly i want to one of these days (laughs) i i have thought about it for many years so um I'm fascinated by well, it. Well normally
2: I would say you're welcome but since we don't own it anymore
0: <laughs> my welcome should be
2: meaningless. Right. The, the county parks board would welcome you.
0: Right. Well I think it's it's wonderful though that that it will be a passive recreation area for people to enjoy and and certainly there I hope that there will be a balance between enjoyment and preservation and I know that's not always easy. I remember going to Hawk Mountain last October and it was so crowded because of you know the the leaves and everything and, and it's famous now somewhat. So I think I walked up most of the mountain <laughs> from where I had to park, but I think Hexenkopf will stay pristine.
2: Yeah. I'd like to close with telling you a little bit about the effort to protect the ridge, the Hexakoff Ridge from the Penn East Pipeline. In 2014, Penn East approached this with a plan to bisect the Hexakoff Ridge about 350 yards west of the actual Witch's Head. They weren't going to go through the Witch's Head, but they were going to go through the Rocky Spine at about an 820 foot elevation above sea level and take the pipeline straight down to Stouts Valley which is about 220 feet above sea level. That's a nearly 600-foot drop in uh, a little less than half a mile. Some of that slope is 35%. Uh, The Hexenkopf is a a very rocky outcropping with very little soil. The bedrock is so very close to the surface. We tried to persuade the pipeline company that another 1,000 yards to the west they could cross in open field they wouldn't need to blast through rock. We got nowhere with them. So uh, I had a conference with some of the witches who are friends of mine. And uh, the Lenape did their part of uh, praying and telling the Federal Energy Commission that they uh, resented the pipeline crossing sacred Lenape land. The witches chipped in too. And uh, we put a curse on the pipeline. And (laughs) one of the... Common Pennsylvania German hexerai curses goes, verdammt design. du Herenson du Herenson du Herrinson, verdammt design. Repeat that three times, and it, it's calling down evil on whomever you are thinking of. And the witches told me they were thinking of the pipeline company at the time, so it was recited three or four times. And as you read recently in the pipe, in the literature, the pipeline company has folded. Now, was it the witches that did that? Was it the Lenape or was it the governor of New Jersey? Whoever it was that uh,
0: had- I'm going not- with the witches.
2: <laughs> I do too. I, I've never met a witch I didn't like.
0: Well, there you have it folks. You heard it here first. It's the witches that saved not only Hexenkov, but- a lot of eastern pennsylvania land and new jersey beautiful countryside from the pennies pipeline which was very controversial from the time it was proposed well thank you so much dr heindel i mean we could easily spend another hour or more talking about uh, the history and i really encourage everybody to pick up a copy of the new edition this is the third edition of Hexenkopf, History, Healing, and Hexerai. I'm sure that's available online. Uh,
2: it, it is, but the it, Northampton County Historical Society sells it from their, through their website. They're the, they're the publisher, okay. uh, Northampton County Historical Society, at the Siegel Museum in Easton.
0: We'll include the link to the Siegel Museum and the book in our description for this episode. And we are big supporters of the Siegel Museum. We recently had the director, Megan Van Ravensway, as our guest. And they're doing some wonderful things to preserve Northampton County history, of course. Well, this is very exciting, and, and it's been very informative. And now we're, we're that much more excited for for Halloween, knowing the, more about the history behind it in our local area. And we will continue to uh, share these stories on Sock and Source. So stay tuned. We've been recording No Rain Date since late 2019, and we've produced a fair number of episodes at this point. We would love to hear your feedback about what we're doing. What makes you tune in every week? What ideas do you have for interview guests? Is there something that you think the podcast is missing? Feel free to share your thoughts, whether they're good, bad, or indifferent with us. You can do that by emailing josh at josh at saukensource.com. No Rain Date is a local news and information podcast, and we focus on the Saucon Valley. However, our guests are from the Lehigh Valley and beyond. So please try and keep that in the back of your mind when you're thinking about ideas for future episodes. Thank you. No Rain Date is an original production of Sock and Source, LLC. Our theme music is provided by This Way to the Egress. For more great music by them, be sure to follow This Way to the Egress on Spotify. Thank you for listening.